Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Joe Frankenfield from Saga Partners. He's uh, at the growthier end of the spectrum. Uh, we're going to talk about his spectacular performance and how he does it right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. How are you, Joe? I'm great. How are you? Well, thanks. So tell me a little bit about Saga Partners. What's the strategy? Sure. And uh, first, thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. Um, you're in my top FinTwit uh, podcast to listen to as I'm driving. So I'm very excited to be on and um, hopefully I give you some good content. But uh, so Saga Partners, I guess when you talk up to any investment manager, you ask about like what um, first motivated them or when they caught the investing itch, you know, when you became obsessed with investing. And the earlier you do that, usually the better. So that way you can learn and modify your craft. Um, I really didn't get that until right after college when I first had money to invest. Um, I studied finance and business in school, but um, it was an, an, nothing really um, inspired me to really love investing because back in school, you take classes on portfolio management using CAPM and WAC and portfolio diversification and, and stuff like that. And that never really um, interested me as much. And so what does interest me is kind of figuring out how the world works. And so I've always been a big reader in like history and figuring out what motivates people. And I didn't know how to really apply that until um, I really started investing my own money and trying to figure out how basically the economy evolves and works and trying to find patterns and puzzles that I'm trying to take advantage of different anomalies. But um, after school, I got a job in banking, which I thought was very interesting because I wanted to learn how business works and try to understand um, basically how businesses win and fail and so that was a great experience but what, what sort of I banking loved, were you doing um i was in corporate banking so basically underwriting senior lending and so i would work with middle market companies and analyze their risks and analyze whether they wanted funding for anything that they may need capital wise whether it was a dividend whether it was capex whether it was making acquisitions so really the full spectrum and it was a great because you worked with or I worked with a lot of different types of companies, um, manufacturing companies, uh, uh, you know, service oriented um, businesses, marketing companies. So it was a great experience to kind of see the full spectrum of businesses. And I was in Cincinnati at the time. And it's kind of um, it was a good space to see a diverse set of businesses. But once I actually started investing on my own personal money, I really caught the investing bug. Like I became obsessed, like, like many in this business do. And I think that um, anyone that will succeed in this business, you have to be obsessed with this because it's you know a competitive um, industry. And so I was finding myself spending my nights and weekends analyzing industries and companies and trying to figure out um, the best value investments. And uh, like many that probably share the similar philosophy as Saga Partners, I was really inspired by Warren Buffett, um, Phil Fisher, Peter Lynch, and trying to I mean, I guess the first book I, I read right after school was um, The Warren Buffett Way. And that kind of led me into reading all of the Berkshire Hathaway annual letters multiple times and then leading you down the road of value investing. And um, actually, I think, when did you, I read your book 
several years ago. When did you publish your book? Oh. Uh, quantitative value came out in 2012, deep value in 2014. Yeah, I remember reading that too. I mean, like, you just go through every single possible book and you're just trying to like, consume information. And so, um, yeah, so that's where I kind of started my journey. And I knew pretty early on that I, this is what I wanted to do full time one day, launch a portfolio one day. So my goal was to kind of work towards that. And um, I started, to, I went to the CFA program. And then after a couple of years, when I was doing corporate lending, I moved into equity research and spent time um, on the sell side. And at that time, I was kind of already formed my philosophy, uh, which is long term fundamental value investing, um, trying to really buy companies below their intrinsic value. Uh, if you know anything about the majority of sell side equity research shops, it's, it's more short term oriented and, and you're basically helping your clients, which are hedge funds and mutual large mutual funds, um, invest uh, based on whether a company beats or misses quarterly earnings. Um, you're trying to uh, motivate them to trade with you. That's how basically um, our shop made money. And so I knew early on that's not necessarily aligned with how I thought investing should work. And so it was only a matter of time where I felt comfortable breaking out on my own. So that way I wanted, to, I knew that when I started Saga Partners or the portfolio that was my goal to start, I wanted to be self-supportive. I wanted to not be motivated to raise assets to compromise our investing strategy. So I got to that point um, maybe five years ago, just under five years ago. And I also, the other motivation is I wanted to feel confident that I'm now going to invest other people's money as well as my own. So I had to feel confident I could beat the market so it was in 2016, early 2016, I got to that point. And um, fortuitously, um, I met my current business partner, Michael Nowacki, and he already had an investment advisory where he was managing um, multiple different strategies based on suitability by, for the client. And he became overwhelming. He was a one-man shop, and he started his advisory, I think, in 2011. Um, and so he was interested in kind of having a core strategy, which is what my goal was, was having one portfolio. And the whole idea behind Saga portfolios, I wanted to manage other people's money the way I manage my own, which is something you don't really find in normal money management shops like large uh, investment management companies, because there's a lot of um, agency costs where uh, they over diversify, they try to, you know, they basically are just trying to beat their benchmark or track the benchmark. And so, um, that was the idea behind the Saga portfolio. And it was in 2016, we put our portfolio together and we launched Saga portfolio at the beginning of 2017. And it's been a good run so far and it's been dream come true so far. Well, let's talk a little bit about the strategy. So I, uh, I, read, I, read, through your, uh, I read through your papers. You're looking for, would it be fair to say you're looking for high quality compounders and then you're trying to find them, bef you're looking for companies that are potential wide moat uh, businesses, but you're trying to catch them on that inflection point sort of post IPO on their, on that very steep ascent to the wide mode. And uh, you've got this, uh, this great quote from Munger where he likens it to surfing. Is that, is, that, is that a fair characterization of what you're trying to do? That is, I mean, that, that's spot on where our portfolio sits today. I, I do say, I guess to start with the Saga philosophy, I mean, the core idea is that Fundamentally, every asset is worth the cash that is distributed to the owners over the life of the, the of that asset, whether it's a bond, a commodity, or an equity of a company. And so with that said, your duration or your outlook has to align with the life of that asset. So 
if we're and we're looking for the best opportunities available out there. And right now we find that in equities, which is usually the case throughout history. And so if you're going to own a company, you fundamentally have to be if that's if you believe that a value of an asset is a cash that is distributed out over the life, that means you have to be long term oriented because those cash flows longer, you know, five, 10, 15 years out are worth a lot more than the one, two, three years out. So we are fundamentally long term um, investors and in trying to figure out where a company will posi be positioned long term. Alternatively, like if you invest in a three-year bond, your your horizon is three years, and so because that's if you're going to hold the the asset during its life. So, all we are trying to do is buy assets for less than we think they're actually worth, and it's worth different to different investors. But we're trying to find the most attractive returns available in the market today based on today's prices. And so, where we have found the opportunities are the ones where the market is underestimating their potential long-term. And if you're looking long-term, it's the companies that have a moat, that have that competitive advantage, the typical Warren Buffett competitive advantage, which I think is not explained often enough or used too often by a lot of investors, but they have to have excess earning power. They have to be earning more than their competitors to make it valuable down the road. If they're just earning um, subsistence, earnings like just to get by like that's not going to give you a good return and i think from what you see i hate the being categorized as a growth investor versus a value investor i say i'm a value investor because i'm trying to earn an attractive return in any asset and uh, so just you may look at our portfolio and yes the companies we own are high compounders today but that's because that's where we find the opportunities today and i tell investors in our portfolio i mean I would be happy to own a no growth company if I found it an attractive rate of return. So an example is Coca-Cola, one of the best businesses in the world, the best brands, has economies of scale. Um, I think in 10 years, I have an idea that what Coca-Cola will be doing in 15, 20 years. And uh, the, the thing is, it's just not an attractive based on today's price. I mean, I think it's selling for 30 times earnings or maybe even more on a free cash flow basis. And the thing is, they just don't have reinvestment opportunities. Um, so what they do is they essentially distribute all that cash flow either through dividends and stock buybacks, which is what they have done. And now if you're going to buy a company that's going to grow their top and bottom line, low single digits, maybe mid single digits if they do really a really good job um, and you're buying it 30 times, you're, not, you're going to get a market return. It's probably fairly priced. Uh, if Coca-Cola was selling for five times their free cash flow or earnings, and they distribute. And I had confidence that they were going to distribute all of those earnings to investors. That would be attractive. That's a 20% plus yield if you held it for 10 years. And so we're just trying to figure out what's the best return opportunities. And what we have found is, uh, and the market has not fully appreciated, and it's appreciating more today as valuations <laughs> continue to go up is that if you find a company earlier in their life cycle that have established themselves as the leader in an industry, um, and it's a big TAM, that word is also used a lot, but if it's a big end market, oftentimes they're underestimating their potential. Um, but that's not always the case. And I always, and so it's always the, like trying to weigh the cost benefit of every single situation, but you might look at like a Shopify or a Zoom and like, yeah, those companies are amazing. Fundamentally, you look at the financials and they generate a lot of free cash uh, and they're growing at such high rates. They do have an advantage relative to competitors. Um, but like if you actually are looking for that 15, 20 percent return, like Shopify is, I think, selling for uh, might be 120 or 30 billion dollars at this point. 
and they're not distributing cash to shareholders and probably won't for the next 10 years because they're reinvesting in the business, especially in like their distribution and uh, uh, network. Um, they're going to be an $830 billion company one day if you wanted like a 15% return. What would you need to fundamentally to justify an $800 plus billion market cap? You probably would need at least $80 billion in sales, you know, $30 billion in operating income. And you're thinking about like, a thing that makes me say we're not in a bubble or anything like that is like, it's possible. I mean, at Shopify, I mean, if I were to guess on a company, Shopify would be a company that would do that. I mean, they have a counter Amazon position, um, but I, would, I mean, it's not one where I think like there's that margin of safety that, uh, and it's one that, it's at, that company I've followed for the last four years pretty closely and just have watched it go on up, up and up. But um, all we're looking for is the best return based on today's prices. And and that that has led us to companies that have these high growth rates that we think the market still underappreciates based on where they're going to be positioned in 10 years from now. Do you want to talk about a few names that you have in the portfolio? Sure. Well, let's talk, yeah. let's talk about Trade Desk. What, what is right. Trade Desk and can you walk us through the opportunity there? Sure. Um, Trade Desk is a platform for um, ad agencies to purchase ad inventory. So they their customers are advertisers like Nike, Procter & Gamble, any company that's trying to advertise. And then basically the suppliers is anything connected to the internet. It could be a website, it could be um, audio, visual, connected TV. And we came across the trade desk in mid to late 2017 and very just fortuitously, like uh, I think it was my partner, Michael Nowacki, he went to some networking event or some marketing event where someone at his table said their son worked there and was raving about the company and saying how great the company was. And that's enough to be like, oh, it's publicly traded. We'll look it up. Like we're always just opportunistically looking for ideas. And like, it's one of those few moments where like you open up the investor presentation and you listen to the investor day, you know, the CEO speak and like the stars align and you're like, wow, this company has something very special. It's just like, and we didn't know a lot about the ad tech space at the time. And so, I mean, you start digging and learning about the different um, value chains within the, the ad tech network. And we, we even contacted um, one of the guys we know in Silicon Valley that works with a lot of tech companies and I asked them about um, demand side platforms, which is what Trade Desk is. And he said, I went touch that with a 10 foot pole. Like it's a commodity and like, there's a history of all the other publicly traded companies in this kind of screwing over shareholders, not being shareholder friendly. But like when you look at the numbers, you look at the story, um, it was very appealing. And the reason why is because basically uh, they are trying to give ad agencies the highest ROI on their ad dollar. And the way that they do that is by analyzing the world of inventory that's available. So ESPN.com, Google.com, Facebook, all the content where you might want to advertise and there's inherent economies of scale in that where it costs money to look at the whole world of uh, inventory and then you only get paid when the agency actually purchases one of the inventory. So you have to have this high fixed cost and then the largest com uh, company in this space is going to do really well or have an advantage. Um, at that time, there were other DSPs or demand side platforms that looked weaker. And so the thesis was that the trade desk would establish themselves as the dominant independent demand side platform. And hence at that point, I mean, the multiples were very low and like potentially for what um, they could be doing in five, 10, 15 years, 
since then, the thesis has evolved to the point where all those other independent demand side platforms have either been acquired or gone out of business. There's like one or two left, like MediaMath is still out there, but there have been reports where MediaMath is trying to sell itself as well. And the reason why they won is because, you know, they, basically they had a better way, algorithmically, a cheaper way to figure out which ads to place accurately for ad agencies. Also, they only serve the demand side while a lot of these ad tech firms also serve the supply side of inventory. So they were there was an inherent conflict of interest where they were taking a big take rate, which was uneconomical for anyone that's trying to advertise. Um, but uh, basically, they have a platform that is very scalable, that has wide bar growing barriers to entry, and it's a huge market. Because if you think about how advertising used to be transacted, it was like the old Mad Men era where you go to it and get a martini launch and you have this, you know, you have your ad um, budget and then you try to allocate it to the three nation, you know, national networks um, and then, you know, kind of do on a handshake lunch. Well, now it's using data. So basically the trade desk is figuring out what is the best way to advertise. And, and, and so like basically what they're disrupting is no data versus using data. They're not disrupt like a lot of these disruptors are disrupting a company that has an inherent um, interest in not being disrupted. So they have to battle them. Basically, it's a greenfield opportunity. And the, there was a saying like with advertising, like 50% of advertising worked. You just didn't know which 50%. Well, now the trade desk can determine which 50% works. Well, the ad space, you know, it's supposed to be a one trillion dollar business globally by 2027, I believe. Um, and how much of that? of those ad dollars will go over a platform like Trade Desk to then be allocated and what's going to be the take rate. Well, right now, like the argument still why Trade Desk is still very attractive, even though it's been a, I think, 13 bagger for us since we first bought it three years ago, um, is that a lot of people are scared of Google and Facebook. They say Google and Facebook are the most powerful internet companies, um, software companies in the world. Like, How are they able to compete with these very strong com companies? Well, the key to the trade desk is they're an independent platform. They're not biased where you allocate ad dollars. Google and Facebook are biased. They have demand side platforms, DSPs, but that's not their core business. Their core business is selling content. They're selling advertising on Facebook.com, Google.com, and YouTube.com. So I think the one statistic I read is for every dollar that goes over the Google's DSP, maybe 60 or 65 cents of that dollar goes on a Google property. For every dollar that goes over the trade desk, it might be like 25 or 30 cents goes to Google. And so obviously the trade desk doesn't care where you spend money. They're just trying to help you as like a, as the advertising agency trying to figure out the best ROI for the ad dollar. So there's it's kind of like Amazon versus um, Shopify. Like Amazon can't compete with Shopify. Amazon is the consumer facing brand where they create this really good consumer experience. Shopify is the infrastructure supporting these other e-commerce sites. Like for Amazon to go head to head with Shopify, they would have to change their business model. Google and Facebook are not going to change their business model, which is a very lucrative, successful business model for a trade desk, which is just to allocate ad dollars. So inherently, this is going to be the winner. It's a winner virtuous cycle type business model where eventually how much of those ad dollars are going to go over the trade desk platform. And they're in the advantage relative to the suppliers of inventory. It's kind of like, there's this general theme that a lot of our companies have and that we've we've come to really appreciate is how the internet has impacted a lot of the economy the economics of businesses across the economy and it's where before if you think about the, the value chain of a business there's suppliers 
there's distribution and there's customers. Those are the three main things for any value chain. And historically, a lot of the companies that have had these excess economic returns control distribution and then integrated backwards to control supply, restrict supply. You can go to General Electric, um, US Steel, uh, I mean, IBM, these companies restricted access to supply. Well, with these internet um, companies, they basically are opening up supply. There's infinite supply, especially if you're talking about like content. And so now it's gone to become controlling the customer experience. And if you control the customer experience, you are in power. And so it's like the Googles, Facebooks, Amazons of the world, Netflixes of the world. And so consumers, customers are just like, they don't know how to filter the infinite supply of whatever it may be in whatever industry it may be. Well, now what the trade desk is doing is controlling the customer experience. They're on the demand side for trying to decipher the infinite supply of inventory. So it's that similar thesis that we've seen play out in many other companies, but um, it's one of those businesses where, and it take, I think it takes investors a long time and to evolve where you go from like kind of, I guess a lower multiple investor and like trying to really look out five, 10, 15 years about what will the fundamentals do to support the current valuation. And for these platforms that are highly scalable that have established themselves as the winner or at least looks like the winner in their space, they can grow revenues at 50, 60, 70% a year, um, depending on what type of industry or the growth uh, of the end markets. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but like, I think the reason why you reached out originally to me was on Twitter. I posted something about like growth expectations and like kind of, I posted something that I was doing analysis about saying like, what's a reasonable expectation for growth companies? And, and you have to be reasonable because you have to look at back you know, last 10 or 15 years and how many of these companies actually compounded at 30%, 25%, 20%. And like, if you find one that does that, the multiple from current fundamentals, you can, it's a very high multiple that you can pay, but there's very few companies that actually do this. And so you have to have conviction that you found one and make sure there is some type of margin safety baked in. Um, but so do you yeah, think so that the, kind of the internet has created more of these? Def I, yes, uh, definitely. Like if you, I think that you have to, Michael Mobusen, or Mobusen, he came out with a really good piece a couple of weeks, maybe last month, about the rise of intangible assets in the economy. And this has been written about a lot. One really good book is Capitalism Without Capital. And the innate characteristics of intangibles and how they're different from a tangible asset. And so as the rise of intangible assets has become increasingly important in the economy. There are different characteristics and dynamics between these intangible assets. And eventually you can only own so many cars, so many houses, so many whatever, or have so many buildings, but like the scale and the ability to have these intangible assets of like business processes of, of, of software, like they're very scalable and like they have these, um, their specific competitive advantages often are their economies of scale because there's a lot of upfront costs that once you establish them like and then you establish yourself as the winner and there's a lot of times network effects so like these businesses could potentially be very large on a global basis and it will increasingly become so going forward um but then again you also have to be conservative and realize not there's not going to be 50 winners you know there's only going to be a handful especially since it's a winner take most dynamic in many of these spaces uh, you sort of gave us a little flavor then about how you source and filter ideas, but what's your, what's your sourcing process? How do you filter down to the ones that are the most interesting to you? And then what 
do you do to sort of prove up the idea? How do you validate it? Yeah, I think I think I listened to an interview maybe this past summer with Guy Spear, and he had an analogy I really liked where looking for ideas is kind of like a drunk in a bar trying to grab a beer or something. Like, you know, it kind of it's very hazy and dark. And if you look at a lot of, and, and I like that analogy because it's more honest, it's more, that's really how it happens. And like, if you look at a lot of investor presentations, and at least the ones I've come across, it always has like funnel. Like, you know, it started this big top of funnel. And then you're like, I have 3,500 publicly traded companies. And you're like, we yeah. narrow it down to a 500, then 100, then, and boom, you have the trade desk, or boom, you have Carvana, or Japan, all these companies. That's not how it works. Like, you want to have this, basically, they're trying to sell themselves, say, this is a process that is repeatable. Like, that's what, but like, the world is a messy place. And so I think if you are in this business, you have to be obsessed with it. Like, I mean, we constantly are thinking about when you wake up and go to bed to the point where my wife is like, this is all I think about. I'm like, no, I swear it. You're my number one. This is number two. But like, <laughs> I'm thinking about business all the time. It's just how you're programmed. And so you have to be opportunistic and always looking when you go to a convention or an event and someone mentions a really great company, look it up. Like that's just what we do. Um, so basically we're always looking and we find ideas all over, whether it is like screening, you know, I, one of my best favorite activities, if I'm not doing anything else is like looking at the list of 3000 publicly company, traded pump companies in the U S and Canada by industry. And I just like to look at their historical operating metrics and you kind of see like why some companies have been successful. Like usually, the winner in a certain industry gets most of the economic profits. And, and you can see sometimes there's this company that's really growing fast based on the revenues or operating income. And you say, what's happening? Like something's interesting. Like you look at Carvana or something, which is another one of our large holdings where you look at used car dealerships and like they've had stagnant operating metrics for ever decades. And then you look at this Carvana and it's like ballooning and you're like, what's happening? Like, why are they able to grow in this industry that has not had historical growth? And so you just see these weird anomalies and then you try to pick them apart and really bucket, do they have an advantage? Like um, one of the books that I think best explains competitive adva advantages is Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. And he really breaks into like seven advantages and like bucketing them into what category and, and companies can have multiple advantages. But um, for every company that we are interested in or or, or potentially want to invest in, they have to have something, whether it's economies of scale, network effect, a process power, uh, some type of cornered resource, counter positioning, which is one of my favorite, where the business model has fundamentally changed. Um, and they are, you know, that happens earlier on the life cycle of a business for, and a lot of companies or a lot of investors, people will say, well, how are they supposed to compete with these huge, very strong companies when they're so small? Well, they have a different business model that's advantaged. And so, that's what we're looking for is trying to figure out what is the advantage for the success of this company. And unless we, if we can't answer that question, we don't invest. Um, and there's a lot of companies that have high growth and like look like they're winning. But if I can't picture what they will look like in the year 2030, I can't invest in them because I can't get conviction because for every single one of our positions, there's going to be times when they're down 50%. And for every time there's going to be all these opinions, especially when we write about them and write have these, you know, we write research on our large positions and I get hate email. And so like, I really, like <laughs> I, I wrote about Carvana, Trupanion, Facebook, all of our positions. I get emails about why I'm stupid, why I'm wrong, because they're heavily shorted. And like, there, there's a lot of people that have different positions and they're incentivized to make the stock go down. And that's often a good sign that it might be a good opportunity because like, if you have, if you can have a, a different position and have conviction in that, because 
oftentimes than not, I always assume the market is correct. Like I always, like when I look at something, I'm like, there's just not free money lying in the streets typically. So when I look at something, I'm like, well, I, unless I know alternate, like a better argument for why the market would be wrong, I just assume it's right until I can get to a position of conviction because you get so much noise and, and information that like, and you have to filter it. And like for every buyer, there's a seller in the market. And so for all these companies we own, there's people that think they're not good investments. And so um, we just have to get conviction. And that's usually by establishing what the competitive competitive advantage is for a certain business. Let's talk about Carvana a little bit, because that is one that sure. is a little bit more controversial. That There's a view, I don't follow it closely, but there is a view that they might be overpaying for uh, some of the secondhand cars that they're buying. And there's, there's some suggestion that I think from what I understand that folks might be buying and then flipping to Carvana as a sort of, as a, like a, a side hustle. So what's, what's the, how do you see the, the opportunity in Carvana and what, what do you say to those sort of uh, sentiments? You know, I, I see some of that as in like, I see people asking questions about are the prices they're paying for used cars too high and is the price that they're selling used cars for too low in order to spur their growth? And there could definitely be cases where they, well, they basically have a strong position because they can see a huge inventory of cars at, versus a normal used car, brick, uh, brick and dealer used car dealership. And so they're looking at all the cars in the country and they're trying to determine what the demand and supply is. So they have a technological data advantage and being able to see like, what is the demand for a Ford Mustang or like a SUV or whatever. And then versus think about, I'll go back. Like think I bought a car in college. It was a Buick LeSabre, a maroon Buick LeSabre. It was about 10 years old and I bought it for $3,000. How did we go about buying that car? Well, my dad looked in the classifieds and said, here's a car. We need a used car for me to get to my internship junior year of college. And it's $3,000. We went to the guy that was selling it. He's like, I don't know what the price is. Um, I think he actually originally said it was like $3,300. And we're like, we'll give you $3,000. He's like, okay, I bought it for $3,000. What is the right price for that car? Well, it was enough for me to pay for like $3,000 in college. And today, Carvana can see what the demand for that used car is. And it's different in every city. It's different based on what the economy is doing. So they will adjust their algorithms based on what makes sense for them to earn economic return. The main important idea about Carvana is that they scale. Like they, they, there is this winner take most dynamic in a very large space. And what is the alternative to Carvana is buying a used car from a brick and mortar used car dealership or like CarMax, which is their main competitor or doing a private transaction. Well, really you're basing competition based on if you're trying to sell your car, like convenience, getting a fair price. And like, that's the main thing. You want a fair price and you want them to take your car from your house. And Carvana provides that. I could see like how sometimes the pricing algorithms mismatch. It's not completely different from like Amazon where they sold things at a loss um, at points in order to gain volume and like gain the distribution and the customer, um, uh, just the best, so customers go to their site. And I, you can argue that they're they're pricing their cars cheaper than a price that they could have sold for, but they're trying to get the volume. And if you do look at the long-term trends, they are they're reaching EBITDA break even this quarter, according to like their um, uh, early release of their their financials. Um, 
so the long-term trend is tracking where their gross profit margin per unit is now going to break even and obviously hit a tipping point where it's going to become cash flow generative. So Carvana, when we invested in it, which was about a year plus ago, I think, um, the story was that this long-term trend would, would continue. And it was a little bit riskier than more companies, most of the companies that we invest in, which are cash flow neutral. Like I usually like to make sure that if the capital markets dried up, like they would be okay. But I believe that they had this long-term um, track record since 2013 of showing how they were scaling their fixed costs and, and, and that there was a really a large demand for this. I mean, they were growing at 100 plus percent for years. And then this, this year, obviously with COVID's uh, become lower, but um, this is a service that people like and appreciate. And I think will scale, continue to scale in this very, very large industry. Why Carvana um, versus so, CarMax? So CarMax is a great company as well. And, and that was obviously one of the biggest questions that we had to answer before we got comfortable with uh, Carvana. CarMax did disrupt the old used brick and mortar used car model as well. And, but they still are using a storefront and a salesperson and their model is much less scalable where they build a store. They have about 200 plus stores across the country. Um, they're probably growing their top line, like high single digits, maybe low double digits. So it's, it, they're, it's consistently growing and doing well. But if you actually look, it's a, it's the, the counter positioning of Carvana. They basically, have all these large upfront fixed costs of software to develop a consumer-friendly um, way to purchase cars, uh, the infrastructure for reconditioning centers, the transportation network, and also building the inventory of cars. They basically have integrated the whole value chain of the used car buying process. And so um, I think to maybe even go from a higher level, one of the most underappreciated things and trying to figure out how durable competitive advantages are Clayton Christensen's uh, innovator's dilemma. And what you see is the companies that earn excess profits that do really well, they basically are, they have to integrate because it's that product or service is not good enough. So Carvana basically is the end to end of a vertically integrated supply chain for buying used cars, all the way from supplying cars, reconditioning them, transport, them, having the consumer interface of the website, also to financing. They integrated the whole entire supply chain. It's because it was clunky before. It was very unconsumer friendly. CarMax is a great company, has done well, but they have not, they have a cash cow. They have a very successful business where they actually earn a good amount of money. However, they st they are now, you can go back. It's like typical counter position. You can go back a year or two and people would ask, or investor analysts would ask about Carvana and say, it's not a big deal. They're not a big threat because obviously CarMax has historically done very well. Well, now a year ago, you can see that they are a threat. We're going to give an omni-channel um, offering where anyone can buy online or they can go into our stores. Well, that doesn't change your cost structure. And so, yes, CarMax has the capital and ability to potentially compete with Carvana, but they would have to disrupt their current cash cow. Like they would have to disrupt their current business model. The line item of a salesperson is expensive. And so basically Carvana is operating from a better cost structure once they scale. Obviously there's all these upfront costs. Carvana, uh, CarMax still has a variable, more variable cost structure. And you can go to the brick and mortar dealership, which is a highly variable cost structure. And it's not uncommon. It really is a similar type of investment thesis of Borders versus Amazon. Like, I mean, and even going back to retail, having um, department stores where there's a salesperson spraying perfume on you and selling you shoes versus having the discount retailers 
where you have Walmart and Target and, and Kmart where you don't need that. You have you just go in, you buy just cheaper goods all the way to the Amazon. So you can see the transition of how the cost structures have, have transferred. So, I mean, we have conviction that Carvana's business model is going to be the future in 20, like when I buy a new car, I'm very, fairly frugal. I'm probably going to buy a used car and whenever I need my next car, I'm going to look for the best deal I can poss possibly find for the car that I want. Most people know the car that they want. They have an idea, they do the research, and then they're looking for the best, most convenient deal, best price and convenience. And I'm thinking, let's say it's the year 2030. Um, I have a high level of conviction that that best deal, cheapest car for the car that I want is gonna be in Carvana. And so well, maybe I might wanna test drive cars, but if I'm gonna be fairly frugal and I can save 500 to $1,000, on the car, I'm going to buy it wherever I can find. I'm not going to buy Carvana because we're investors in Carvana. I'm going to buy it because I want the best deal. And so, you know, it's interesting. Like that's the most fundamental important thing is like their cost structure. Vroom recently went public and I got lots of questions on Vroom because people know that we are long Carvana. Vroom still has a variable cost structure. They still outsource their reconditioning, their transportation and that and it's kind of it makes it more clunky process. Like you want a streamlined, easy process. Now, once uh, Clayton Christensen explains this very well, like once the industry becomes more mature and things become more plug and play, then you can see like Carvana will be like, where is the commodity, the modularized part of the supply chain? Where is the commodity part? Well, it's probably inventory. What Carvana is doing is they're basically commoditizing car inventory where like you don't care if you want a blue Ford or a blue G, whatever car, you don't care where it comes from. You just want it. And like, you have, you have all these options. Well, Carvana is going to recondition it for you. They're going to transport it to you. And you have their interface where you can find that car and they can do it cheaper than alternative options. And so if you go, and then you can go back in history, go to the 1950s and 1960s, who were the best companies? It was GM and Ford. They were the most powerful companies in the world. And they earned really high profit margins. It's because they, still were innovating. They had sustaining innovations, but once innovations got too far, where people no longer cared how fast a car went, because we have speed limits and things that make it, it doesn't matter how, if you can go 200 miles in a car, because you can't drive that faster. How comfortable, like how comfortable can a seat actually be? Well, once that happens, you start competing on different uh, matters. You start competing on like um, convenience, price. And so then GM and Ford became less powerful because they no longer could innovate because the actual um, product became too good. And so then you compete in other matters. And so right now, Carvana has integrated the entire vertical supply chain, likely going to be the winner in this space, a very large space. And there there will still be like CarMaxes of the world. And I think it's something that we still have to watch because CarMax still does have the power to change your business model. However, you look at, at history throughout business, it's unlikely that they will do that. So something similar to like the trade desk, like the thesis was they would be the established winner of the independent DSPs, and we just have to track that. Like, if one thing to verify our thesis is like over quarter, quarter, year, over year, they need to be gaining market share in the prog programmatic advertising space, or else our thesis is wrong. So, like, that's something to watch and then verify. So, how do you think about uh, concentration, diversification? trimming positions? So, you've got something like uh, your trade desk, which has gone up thirteen fold. Do you just hold that initial position and let it run, or are you trimming that back? How, how does that process work in the in the portfolio? Yeah, um, I think of concentration and diversification. It's an art and, and partly science, and so uh, it's a matter of how confident you are that a company will do what you think it will do, 
And then what are your also alternative options? So if, if I could choose 50 companies that I had high level of conviction would earn a 20% caker over the next 10 years, I'd diversify among 50 opportunities, but that's not the world we live in. And like, and so what we do is we rank our ideas um, based on conviction and the expected return that we would range of expected returns that we would think might happen over the next 10 or so years. And the thing about investing or just investment management is that there aren't a lot of opportunities that you can get with conviction before they actually happen. It's always easy to look back in hindsight and say Apple is a no-brainer or like Facebook is a no-brainer. But sometimes you can see that there's a company that's established themselves as the winner. They have a competitive, durable advantage and they're valued at an attractive price. And if you get and if you look at where the returns of the stock market have come historically, it's the Pareto's 80-20 principle. I mean, 20% of the opportunities provide 80% of the return, and then you can reapply the 80-20 within the 20%. So they, there are a few companies that have extremely high excess returns. And so if you get the conviction, like a trade desk like we did have, um, you concentrate. I mean, I wrote in our investor letters, like it basically is a once in a 10 year, like since I've been investing, you know, probably for the last 12 years, it's the best opportunity that I came across. And when you find that, like you better concentrate because they don't come around often. You have to also understand like there's the, what you're trying to avoid are the, the unknown unknowns, like the black swan events, the things that you aren't thinking about. So you never want anything to destroy your portfolio. So that's why we never use leverage. We don't even short because the risk return doesn't make sense to us. Um, so anyways, when you find that we concentrate, but it's also like, what's our number two idea? Is it just as good or is it far worse than the trade desk? And so, but as the trade desk has grown and, and, and become a 10 plus bagger for us, um, the, the future returns have gone down. And so, you know, what is the potential market value of the trade desk in the year 2030? Is it 100 billion, 200 billion, 300 billion? What would justify those returns? Like how much advertising would have to go over the platform to justify it? Well, you know, based on our analysis, it could be 50 or 60 um, billion dollars of this one trillion dollar industry would probably have to go over their platform to justify today's price. Right now, there's like three or four billion that goes over their platform. Um, what's the likelihood of that actually happening? And I mean, if they're the winner, it's probably, in our opinion, pretty high. But yes, like at one point, the trade desk was over 30, 35 percent of our portfolio. And we have trimmed it after it I mean, actually during March crash, the, the stock fell from um I think it was $300 to 150 and just under maybe 140 and the expected return went up a lot more because nothing else changed except for that. We potentially are going to go through a recession. So add dollars will go down. And so then we actually increased our allocation materially in March, same thing with Carvana and like a few other holdings. And so we're always trying to be like, what's the expected rate of return. And that kind of gets into another part of our philosophy, which is that we're not trying to time the market. I think that's, if you look back, like that's, one thing that no one has the ability to do and what we're always trying to do is think of what is the best opportunity today with our capital and if it's long-term money which i think all money into the stock market is long-term money or it should be um you're not are you going to put it in cash like are, which is going to depreciate in value over time or if the best opportunity we can find is 15 percent, like we'll invest in the 15 percent opportunity relative to what we think the s p will return but I guess to get back to your question about diversification uh, and concentration, yes, we have trimmed trade desk because the expected return has gone down. And we have found other ideas that we think are very attractive as well. So we would increase those allocations. 
we generally say that we hold about 10 holdings and that's we're not stuck to that number it's just because if we, we're not going to invest in the 10th holding just to have 10 holdings it has to be an attractive um opportunity um and so yeah i think a, a good analogy of like how much makes sense for a portfolio, like whether it should be a 10% holding or 15% or a 20% or it's like kind of similar to like, if you're trying to shoot a basketball hoop, like, like, you know, you generally know where you need to be aiming and you know, like how hard you have to push the basketball, but you don't know it needs to be 35% angle and it's 10 feet this way. And like the actual, you just generally know, like that's a good amount for the risk reward payoff. And that's how I think about it, where we have a general idea that this is a very attractive opportunity it should be a large percent of the portfolio, but we don't know if it should be 18% or 19%. Like, and stocks fluctuate all the time. And if there's one thing in, in owning common equities, it's that people trade too often, not too little. So we generally like to leave stocks unless prices really fluctuate, which in this year has been the case because we've had higher turnover because stocks have moved all over the place. That's absolutely fascinating, Joe. I really appreciate the time that you've spent with me today. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? Or follow along with um, what you're doing. I recently got more uh, involved in Twitter in the last year. Um, so you can reach out to me at, at Saga Partners or you can go to our website, um, www.sagapartners.com and you can reach out that way um, through our communication uh, site. Uh, thanks very much, Joe Frankenfield, Saga Partners. Thank you. Thanks, Tobias. <laughs>